This morning, I'd like to ask if you would open your copy of the Scriptures and find your way to John chapter 11, and I'm going to make an argument today. I am going to make an argument that Jesus has proven that He is life. And this is something that we may take for granted as Christians, but in the story that we find in John chapter 11, we see that it is far from, uh, far from common and far from something that is to be treated lightly. This is a lengthy passage of Scripture. We won't be able to read it in its entirety today. For time's sake, I want to bring your attention to the 54 verses uh, of John 11. Yes, I know, 54 verses. And I want to show you how this good shepherd, as he speaks of himself in John chapter 10, is indeed a true friend. And that through his display of friendship, <clears throat> he is able to bring glory to the Father, and that he works in such a way that salvation is also brought to those in need. Follow along as I read. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and Martha, her sister, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, <clears throat> but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And let's pause there for a moment. The setting of this story is that Jesus is doing his ministry. He is preaching and teaching, and he receives word from his close friends, friends beyond the twelve, and we see a friendship that exists that uh, we are just clued into for the very first time in John's gospel. And like all friendships, when there is a need, there is a request. The very first half of Jesus' response in verse 4 is challenging to us. At best, it comes off as callous. Ah, it's not that bad. At worst, 
and callous especially because of the fact that we are told these are close friends whom he loved, verse 3, 5, and again we'll see it later as we look at verses 33 through 37. At worst, this shows Jesus as callous because, spoiler alert, Lazarus does die. And although we are told in verse 5 that Jesus loved the family, we also recognize the fact that he delayed his departure. And we have to ask ourselves, how is this loving? I think this is an interesting point because we don't want to say that Jesus is so self-absorbed that he has to let his friends suffer in order that he can come in and play the hero. But that is a real tension that's created here. What is the reason for Jesus doing what he has done? Is it for that effect? Is it that he did not know that Lazarus was going to die? And he really believed his statement that, no, this is not an illness that leads to death, but this is for the glory of God. Well, let me just remind us what we have discovered in John's gospel time and time again. Just as Jesus was asked by his disciples in John 9, 3, whose sin led to this man being born blind? Was it his or his parents? Remember what Jesus said to that question? No one. It was that the work of God might be displayed in him. And that's what Jesus says yet again here in this circumstance. Jesus heard this in verse 4, and he says, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Time and time again in John's gospel, when people try to pressure Jesus to do something, as we see here, the sisters are basically saying, he's sick, you need to come, and you need to heal him. You have healed all these other people, Jesus. How could you not heal your good friend Lazarus? Well, go back to chapter 7 and verses 3 through 10, when Jesus' own brothers basically said, hey, You want everyone to know who you are, so why don't you go up to the Feast of the Tabernacles? Go up to Jerusalem. Just do your signs and your works there so that everybody will know this. It's a big coming up party for you, Jesus. Jesus said he wasn't going to go then. Later he went. Chapter 2 and verse 1, that story of his very first miracle of the wedding feast where he turned water into wine. Who was it that asked him to do that? Well, she didn't specifically ask to do that, but she said, fix this problem, son. It was his mother, Mary. And so his brothers taunt him, his mother is trying to push him, and now his friends. Over and over we see examples in John's gospel where people are trying to compel Jesus to act and do and be according to their circumstances. And what has Jesus said over and over and over in this gospel? I came not to do my will but the Father's. The pace in which Jesus is going to do ministry is at the pace that the Father has foreordained. And yes, it's true. In chapter 7, he did go up to the Feast of Tabernacles, but not when his brothers were telling him to go. And yes, it's true. When Mary said, hey, whatever he says to you, you do it to the servants. And Jesus turned water into wine. And yes, even as we see here, two days later, Jesus left. But don't, don't hear And see that Jesus is not loving. In fact, I think that's why John repeatedly speaks over and over again of Jesus' love for this family. He doesn't want us to see the delay is negligence or unlovingness from the good shepherd. 
In fact, what he wants us to know is that Jesus indeed did love them very much, but that Jesus' devotion was to a higher calling and to a greater love, and that was to do and be and act exactly as his father wanted him to do. And so, Jesus recognized that Lazarus did have to die in, for, in order for this most extraordinary miracle to, to unite the Jewish leaders around killing Jesus as we look to the end of the chapter. If Jesus had healed a sick Lazarus, would that have been the impetus that started everyone getting on the same page finally, Jesus has to die? No, it wouldn't have been. And so we see that God has orchestrated something here, even in the midst of suffering, that he is at work. Our Lord's timing is always perfect. And I need to repeat that because some of us are in a situation, even right now, where we are thinking, God, you need to act. And God is saying, I've already got this. You need to trust me. You need to just keep doing those things that I've called you to do while you wait on me. Friend, when we try to dictate to God, should it be any surprise to us when the same thing happens to us as it's happened here? There is a delay, and it's not because God has the power and he's unwilling to share it. It's because God is working all things together for his good and his glory. After finishing the work where Jesus was, he announced it's time to go to Judea, and it runs us into another problem, because the disciples are basically like, hey, this is the highway to the danger zone. That's just to see if some of you are awake still, okay? Jesus, you remember, we left Jerusalem back in chapter 10, because they were trying to rock you to sleep, literally stone you. There's another one for you. And yet Jesus says his knowledge of God's plans is giving him the freedom to return to his friends in spite of the risk that this posed to him. Because he knew, even being just two miles away from the seat of the Jewish ruling class's power, he could still do the work that God had called him to do because his time had not yet come. Jesus uses this illustration of working during the daylight. You don't, you don't work in the dark, you stumble around in the dark. You work in the daylight. My work, the things that I have to do, the clock is ticking on. And so we are going to go and do this. And Lazarus has died. I must go awaken him, he says in verses 11 through 15. The disciples picked up on what Jesus said in verse 4, that this sickness, this illness doesn't lead to death, and they thought it was staying there, that Lazarus was still physically ill. And so in their language, sleep, rest. Jesus is going to go awaken him. It's not that he's dead and he's going to be resurrected. It's that he's sick and he's recovering. <clears throat> we need to pause here for a moment <clears throat> to consider what John says. As we look at these verses, when Jesus says that Lazarus has fallen asleep in verse 11, but I go to awaken him, can there be any sweeter picture for death than sleep? Think about this, Christian. Every single one of us hopefully got some sleep last night. Sleep is temporary. Morning comes. Death is not the end. And we have a God who is so powerful and is so full of life that He can speak of that 
finality of death as sleep? Oh man, this is the Christian God. This is the God who has the power to speak a word and bring life. Is it any wonder then that Jesus needs to slow down to instruct his disciples of what is really taking place here? No, no, brothers, Lazarus is not asleep. He is dead. And I rejoice that he's died when I wasn't there. Now, that seems really, really callous, Jesus. You really, you really, um, you really love your friends, don't you? <clears throat> Our culture is obsessed with avoiding death. And so we call it a celebration of life and other euphemisms. The ancient world was no different because death was that adversary that found every single person. No one could escape death. And in reality, Jesus' resurrection changes all of that. Because we know, Christian, that our hated foe has indeed been defeated. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 15. I encourage you, go back to our sermon archives. Listen to Tanner's uh, exposition of that passage. So complete was Jesus' power and victory over death that he could simply describe it as sleep, temporary, a light, small thing. And when the disciples still don't get it, in verses 12 and 13, he speaks even more plainly. He shocks them with saying, Lazarus has died, and I'm glad. Now, let's not forget what Jesus said in verse 4. This illness is not, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So, Jesus isn't saying that he's not going to die, but it's not going to stay in a dead position. Jesus already knew he was going to raise Lazarus. Back in, chapter, in verse 4, what Jesus is saying is all of this is orchestrated, not like a cruel puppet master, but in such a way that God is going to show his divinity by Jesus raising this dead man. No doubt they were already believers, but Jesus is, he is eager, anticipating, kind of like a parent maybe, that's bought a present for their son or their daughter, they've wrapped it up, and they're just anticipating the excitement that they're going to have when they open it and see what is inside. Here's Jesus saying, guys, my joy is not in Lazarus' death. It's in what his death and his resurrection is going to do in your life to make you believe me even more. Now, they had faith in Jesus already. I'm convinced of that. But Jesus is talking about growing their faith even more. And he wants them to know that there is real joy in his life as he anticipates their increasing faith. One commentator said this, It is hard to know what one's faith is worth till some severe test comes. He goes on to make a confession. I believe, but in which measure I do not know. And so I pray God to do for me, or do in me, or to me, whatever will have the result that I may believe. We just talked about how sometimes God delays his work in our lives in order to teach us to trust him, in order to uh, create and follow the plan that he has, he's laid out. 
And now we're seeing here that even in that situation, how is it that we're to respond? It is to still have faith in the one true God, even though circumstances remain unchanged. So brethren, let us trust our Savior and let us always remember that He is constantly working in us to the same end to see your faith in Him grow more and more. And in verse 16, John introduces us to one of the lesser-known disciples. In fact, that seems to be a recurring theme in John's gospel. We were introduced to Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel in chapter 1. And here at a moment when you'd almost expect to hear Peter say something really crazy, like, let's go get him. Here it is Thomas that we're introduced to. And this guy is an interesting bird because in John's gospel, whenever Thomas speaks outside of this present passage, in chapter 14, he's, he's questioning Jesus. And then in chapter 20, he doubts the resurrection actually happened. He goes so far as to say, unless I see with my eyes and feel with my hands the nail prints and the, and the spear wound in his side, I won't believe. This is the guy who says, in a very fatalistic way, don't, it is brave, we're, we're commitment, our commitment is to you, Jesus. But he's very fatalistic. He's like, okay, oh, we're just all going to die with him, guys. Buckle up, it's going to be a ride. But we're all going to go. So Jesus comes in verses 17 through 37. He arrives there at Bethany. He doesn't go to the house, but he goes to the grave. And in this process, he has a conversation both with, with both sisters, Martha first and then Mary. Jesus came. He found that Lazarus has already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Listen to Martha's words, verse 21. She said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. Mary will say something to the same effect. In verse 32, later she would come to where Jesus was and she would see him fall at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You see, there's faith in Jesus that he could heal the sick. There's a partial faith. As Martha goes on, Jesus, in her conversation, as we go back to verse 22, she says, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus, I know that you have a unique relationship with God. He hears your prayers. Now, I don't think that Martha is expecting Jesus to raise Lazarus. I don't believe that at all. I think what she's saying is that you have a unique relationship with God. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And here's how I, why I believe that she's thinking of the end. Look at verse 24. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, 
who is coming into the world. And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she made the same statement that Martha did. And we're told in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jewish funerals were accompanied by a lot of wailing. We've seen this on TV, haven't we, this week? What's going on in Gaza Strip? The Palestinians who are mourning their dead loved ones, the Jews who are mourning theirs. This is a culture of great expressive. It's not austere and quiet like us uh, from the West. And so they are wailing and they are mourning. There, there, there were times where you would even hire people to mourn and wail alongside with you. Jewish culture was so different from ours, but what we see here is that John says that even Christ cried out. He wept, verse 35. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And so what we see here in Jesus' interaction with the two sisters and the Jewish statements that are being made by the crowd, there's all this expectation. He could have prevented this, but now what? We're stuck. We need to understand that there are these people mourning with these sisters are mourning with them out of care and concern. They're showing affection for them. And I think this is a great testimony to the church I can't tell you how many funerals I've done with non-Christians, and it is a completely different environment than it is for a Christian funeral. They may just be a small family gathered around that casket. There's very little hope. There's the desire to um, just get past this moment as quick as possible. But in Christian funerals, I can't tell you how many times I've heard Christians say, I can't imagine how a non-Christian can say goodbye to a spouse or a child or a parent without any hope. Their only hope is in this resurrection that we are promised. A resurrection that Christ experienced physically. A resurrection that he gave to Lazarus. Our union with one another, as we come together to mourn at times of funerals, it is an incredible testimony to the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't, Don't misunderstand the fact that there is work involved. It takes time to inconvenience yourself, to come to a funeral. And by the way, I'm not expecting any funerals this week, so please don't um, anybody pull the lever too soon, okay? But like having a dinner for the family to just sit back and relax and to spend some time with, that's a great gift. It may be taken for granted in Christian circles, but that is so unusual. I need to tell you it's unusual so that we can encourage the ongoing work 
of ministering and comforting and caring for one another in such times. Jesus speaks to Martha. She has an if-only outlook, as does Mary. And when Jesus speaks to her about Lazarus rising again, she believes it is the last day that he is speaking of. She must have listened well when Jesus taught in John chapter 6, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him on the last day. That must have settled deep within Martha's heart. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to bring Him to life today. Not on the last day, but today. He had declared in Himself the full embodiment of everything that means for the resurrection and life. It is in Christ, in the person of Him. I am the resurrection and the life, he says in verse 25. He's already spoken of this so many times throughout the gospel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. John 5, 21. We're told in in John 1, verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. John 3, 36, in his conversation with Nicodemus at night, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And we will get to this glorious passage in a few weeks in John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. But notice what else Jesus says in verses 25 and 26. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Paul understood this, which is why he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And what what Paul is saying is that there is this representative head for the entire human race who failed, and because of his failure, sin has passed upon all of us because we've all sinned, each and every one of us. And yet God has chosen in his wisdom to create a second Adam who is a better Adam, who will not fail when tested, and who will, instead of giving the genetic code for death, he will pass on and grant the eternal life of the Spirit. This is our Jesus. Paul also notes this in Colossians 3 and verse 4. Christian, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. If you are not a believer, if you are not a follower of Jesus, let me thank you first for coming, for sitting through this and observing the strangeness of Christian worship, that we sing loudly and corporately, that we pray long prayers and that we spend time studying a book called the Bible and seeking to understand its meaning. But let me also point out a clear distinction between yourself and us. You believe death is the end. We believe Christ is life. Christians do physically die, yes. But we will not die in the fuller sense of the word. Physical death is a doorway which leads to life and fellowship with God. And now Jesus 
poses the question to Martha, do you believe? Martha, you got my teaching on the, on the resurrection of the last day. But I want to give you something new. I want you to know that I have the power to raise the dead. And that by doing that, that indicates I have the power to do that over and over and over and over again. And that I am granting a life that is eternal. Yes, Lazarus, after he was raised, he would die again physically. But Jesus is using this physical resurrection as a sign, as an indicator that he has the power to give eternal life to whomever he will. And Jesus isn't interested in philosophy. What he says to Martha is, do you believe this? I want you to personally appropriate this. I want you to grab hold of this. I want you to focus on it. I want you to believe it with every core of your being. And that belief is going to lead to action. In John 6, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven Even as we celebrate communion this morning, we are reminded of this. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. We are demonstrating and we are observing an ordinance that the church has observed for thousands of years. A symbol of a broken cracker, a broken body, of juice in a cup of spilled blood that purchased our redemption. And all this is designed to show us that Jesus is indeed life to us. We need bread and we need water to live. We need the cup and we need the body. Here's Jesus speaking, not just for the sake of agree with me, but believe this. And Martha's confession is profound because it's, it's really a statement of faith. She's now starting to turn the corner. First, she says, I believe that you are the expected Jewish Messiah. And then she says, I believe that you are the Son of God. Now, to what extent did she understand what that meant? Perhaps like John the Baptist in John chapter 1, she's just declaring this. Or like Nathaniel in John chapter 1. Or Perhaps she has a full understanding as Jesus called for in John chapter 5. Whatever it is, she's absolutely certain that Jesus has a unique relationship with God that sets him apart from every other individual. And then she says, I believe that you are the one who is coming into the world. Jesus, you are the ultimate deliverer sent by God to do his will. Jesus' conversation with Martha is ended. He begins his conversation with Mary. And we see again his tenderness and empathy as he is deeply moved. The Jews see this. And they, like Mary and Martha, believe Jesus could have prevented that. But the time is now past. And there's just a sense of hopelessness, of sorrow and pain that's hanging in the air. So Jesus says at that time, Where is the grave? And they lead him to it. And when they arrive there in verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha protests. The sister of the dead man, it says, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. 
had no embalming that, that was practiced in Jewish culture. Usually a body was buried the same day. They may wash it and lay it out for a day as in Tabitha. We, we see that in the book of Acts. But most often, because of this, there was a quick burial of the body. They would wrap it all up in spices and ointments and salves to help with the smell, but they were tucked away into a cave, a tomb. All this was handled very quickly. And Jesus said to her in verse 40, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Going back to what he said in verse 4. And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, this passage is often challenged because it doesn't appear in any other gospel except for John's. And I would argue that based on the details that John provides in this passage, it's clear first that he had firsthand experience. He talks about names, places, days, distances. He talks about the specifics of, of two days, of four days, of stink, and all this. It's very clear that he had knowledge of what took place here. Even if you take this away, we have all the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, speaking of Jesus raising the dead in the, in the case of Jairus' daughter and the widow's son. But we can't miss the realities of this passage. Let's just be very clear. Lazarus was ill, and Lazarus died. Lazarus was prepared for burial. He'd been wrapped in linen Lazarus had actually been buried and for four days. And the expectation is Lazarus' body is decomposing. And further, the obvious, Lazarus is being mourned over. What should we draw from this conclusion but that Lazarus was dead, really dead? And Jesus, what he does here as he speaks and prays publicly to his father, he does so not so that, uh, that people will learn something. He's not doing it because the father is now being uh, somehow manipulated or beseeched. He's doing it simply because he wants the people around him to understand that he had been sent by God. Even in this, the smallest of ways of a public prayer, a short one at that, that Jesus demonstrated his total commitment to fulfill the Father's mission. He prayed so that people would believe the Father sent him. And I can't think of any clearer uh, response for the one who is life and who gives life than for him to respond to death by rebuking it and calling forth from its grasp those whom he wills to raise to eternal life. And this is the hope of every Christian, that on that day when the trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ will be raised and united with him. 
What else could and should a holy God do in light of such things? Jesus promised the disciples and Martha that they would see the glory of God, and indeed they did. What do we read in verse 45? That many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And what we see in verses 47 on down to 53 is that this hardens the hearts yet further. And the Caiaphas, the high priest, who is a Sadducee and he's of the the Levitical line, he is a true priest, but he is so corrupt. He demonstrates how poorly shepherded the Israelites were under his leadership. He cares not for truth. He cares not for Jesus' innocence. He cares not about right or wrong. He is only concerned with his position. And any threat to that is a threat to be reckoned with. And so he rebukes all the other idiots around him and says, this is what we're going to do. We are going to kill him. And from that day forward, they made plans to put him to death, verse 53 says. The final penny had dropped, and now all the aspirations of removing Jesus, all of the efforts to stymie his ministry in a growing favor and publicity, now they are all pitted toward one outcome, the death of Christ. We will put an end to the one who is able to give life to people. And notice, as, as we look at this, um, we read in verse 47, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they gathered the council together and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? They weren't denying what Jesus had done. This is a huge argument for the validity of this resurrection account. They weren't saying, like they will at the end of Jesus' death, that his body was stolen by his disciples and paying off the guards to perpetuate that lie. No, there is no question Lazarus was dead and now he's alive and that Jesus is responsible. And not just for this miracle, but many others. They agree that he, that he did these things. And so it makes you wonder, why? Why do they choose to look at life and want to kill it? Why do they want to destroy Jesus? He's not done anything wrong. He's he's not hurt anyone. He's only done good for people. Jesus, Jesus is a conundrum. He promised the disciples and Martha that they would see the glory of God, and indeed they did. Many who saw this believed in Jesus. They saw him give life to a dead man. That is no small thing. But it is the believer who truly understood what Jesus had done in raising Lazarus. He had planted his flag in declaring that he indeed is the resurrection and the life. And that all who believe in him will not perish. But the actions of his enemies have to be wrestled with. Not all believed. Some began plotting. And we see that they were unable to refute Jesus. They had to admit what he had done is real. But why does this miracle precipitate the final clash between the leadership and Jesus? You've heard the saying, perhaps, 
that you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Those whose minds are made up to oppose Jesus and what he stands for will not be convinced by evidence. You're sharing the gospel with someone, whether it's the first time or the 50th time with a dear friend, and they are adamant in rejecting all of it. They have no room for any admission at all that they are submissive to, accountable to a God. That is not uh, language and vocabulary that they appreciate. They are their own individual, and no one is going to tell them what to do. And you can open the Scriptures, and you can lay out for them this very passage in John, and you can show them, and it still won't convince them. And you wonder why. Well, look at the end of the passage, because men whose hearts are willfully darkened to the gospel reject all reason. And there is a point in time where we have to turn them over to the outcome of their decisions and their choices. You can't always convince people to believe something just because you do. And you can lay out the facts for them so clear as 2 plus 2 equals 4, and they will still reject it. The parable of the rich man and another Lazarus is proof of this. He's in hell begging Abraham, send someone back to my brothers to warn them of the danger to come. And Abraham says, hey, they're not going to listen to a ghost, an angelic being. They've already got all the witnesses they need with Moses and the prophets, and they have refused to hear them. So this priest, this man who is supposed to be God's representative to the people and for the people before God, proves himself to be not a good shepherd, but a wicked and an evil shepherd. And yet, verse 53, uh, what we see here is that this man, although he is not concerned by what is right or wrong, what does verse 51 say? We are reminded yet again of God's sovereignty. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Friend, let me just say, this is amazing to see that once again God is sovereign. As corrupt as this man was, God spoke through him because of his office, not because of who he was. And we are reminded that yet again, God can and will use wicked men and their wicked schemes to accomplish his glorious salvation. And John doesn't let us just think that this is only good news, Jesus dying as a substitute for the Jewish people, but John expands it and says it's not only going to be for their benefit, but God is going to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And here's what we see. Morris says this in his commentary. Sin scatters people, but salvation in Christ brings them together. And isn't that true? I mean, look around this room this morning. We have more reasons to not be here than we do to be here. What brings us here is Christ. Christ crucified, buried, and Christ risen. 
we are here celebrating on this very day. Sunday is the day that he rose. It was the first day of the week. And now Christians have set this apart for millennia upon millennia to worship the risen Savior. Not just on Easter, but every Sunday is a memorial. It's a worship time of this one who's conquered sin and death. I presented the passage as best I could to make the argument that Jesus is life. And so I will use his own question of Martha with this. Do you believe? Do you believe? Personally, have you laid hold of this faith, this doctrine, this truth? Has it reshaped your life? Have you experienced that new birth that doesn't need and cannot be hidden? It has to produce fruit. A new birth automatically cries out for more food and nourishment. A new birth produces strength in the life of the believer. It produces fruit. Is that has that been your experience? This is the most important thing. Not one of us is promised to tomorrow. And so today, as the writers of Scripture say, today is the day of salvation. With real earnestness, if you have questions about what this means for you, please speak with myself or one of the elders after the service. We would gladly meet with you throughout the week, or even take time this very day to sit down with you and walk with this, walk with you through the Scriptures. Lord, we pray that there would indeed be an opportunity for each and every one of us to understand these great and glorious truths. Lord, while we recognize the hardness of these religious leaders to Jesus, and it's a real thing, we pray that that would not be the experience of anybody in this room. Soften hearts. Even hearts that have long resisted your wooing and your beauty and your holiness. We pray that you would turn people from darkness to light. That all the images and the metaphors and the things that were said plainly in this passage would come crashing down on that rebellious heart and that you would turn them to you as their only escape. There is judgment coming and death is uh, ahead for all of us. So let us not run away from you but to you in your cross. We pray we pray that all that's said and done this morning, even as we observe communion, would help people believe that you sent Jesus to be the Savior, to be our Savior. And we ask this in his name. Amen. As we come to the communion table, this is an opportunity and a reminder for believers we celebrate the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, Jesus said, I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there when Lazarus was sick. And we understood what that meant. That, that meant that Jesus had a joy that by doing this miracle in the sight of his disciples, their faith would increase. That Jesus is even more beyond what they thought and believed at that time. But here we are celebrating the Lord's Supper because we recognize that in the cross, on the cross, Jesus took the wrath 
the judgment of God that you and I deserved. And he established the Lord's table to be celebrated in churches by believers who have placed their faith in the death, resurrection, and return of Jesus Christ. So here at South Canyon, if you're a guest with us and you are a believer, we practice open communion, which means this, that as a believer, if you are in good standing with a like-minded church where you hear the same gospel preached that you've heard this morning, then we invite you to join us in this celebration. However, as we are always careful to do, this also comes with a warning because if you are not a believer, please, please, please do not take the cup or the bread in the cup and pretend that you are to fit in. No one's going to look cross-eyed at you if you let these things pass. There's a real significance here because in the early church, people did that and they profaned it. And Paul wrote about it because he recognized that some were dead because of doing this. Now, we do know this is crackers and juice, right? It's not these elements that are cursed or tainted or anything like that. But Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And so what he urges is this, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. There is a reality behind this, these symbols. We are testifying corporately that Jesus, a real man who was the Christ, who was the Son of God, who brought real eternal life into this world, gave his life for us. And if you're not a Christian, we just urge you to let those things pass by. And so let's take Paul's admonition to heart. Let's examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And let's take a moment for silent confession of sin. And I'll ask the men to come as they help us participate in the table.